It's about that time. Thank you so much for downloading today's episode of Carl Buys Houses. My name's Carl Krenzel, your host here today, here to help you with your real estate questions. Thank you so much for taking the time to download this episode. Now today, what I'd like to talk with you about is how to buy an REO property, how to buy short sale properties, how to buy bank distressed properties, and what you should do to get the best deal. Now today, uh, I'm going to be very honest. I'm trying to keep this as short as possible because I recognize that there's uh, a lot of people who are going to be listening to this very shortly. Now, right now, I recognize that the Twitterverse and Facebook and YouTube and everybody's uh, full of how great the market is and how perfect things are and pent-up demand and low interest rates and, woo, we can't wait to get good values. Uh, but... If you've been listening to the podcast for any period of time or watching my YouTube videos or anything like that uh, at carlbyshouses.com or any place like that, you just recognize that I am not all that confident about our market. You know, it's my opinion, of course, and take that for what it's worth. It's only an opinion, folks. I mean, you need to do your own financial investigation, of course, but it's my opinion that this real estate market is going to suffer quite a bit in the next six to eight months. You know, it's not going to take too long for the stimulus checks to run out, for the services to cut back and, and the taxes to rise before people start getting real upset and real antsy. And then this is going to lead to a lot of problems. Now, I'm not going to go into all the reasons why there's going to be problems, but Suffice it to say, at the moment, it's my belief that there will be a significant number of foreclosed properties here in Arizona in particular, and in your town too. In addition to that, there's going to be a notable number of short sales coming up in the very near future. Now, I recognize that flies in the face of most of the real estate experienced advice you get from people. But let me tell you from 24 years as a real estate broker, having seen a couple uh, depressions, or not depressions, but a couple recessions, if you will, uh, having seen the effects of Fed policy on your dollar, I can tell you from a, re <laughs> from a real estate broker's opinion and perspective that we're in trouble. But there is a way for you to capitalize on this. And, and what should you do? I mean, what could you do? If you knew back in, say, 2005 or 6 or 7, you know, or maybe even as late as 2007, right? The, the, the third quarter. That the market was going to collapse in 2008 and that, that there was going to be a significant amount of pain involved in the real estate market for a couple years, what would you do? How would you react if you'd known then what you know now? Well, it's pretty simple. I mean, just fast forward to where you are now. Because all the very same experiences that we had in 2008 are here today in 2020, except they've been multiplied. 
Now, I recognize that this is horrifying a lot of agents out there. Uh, for me to say, gosh, this is the same but worse, you know, you're going to say, well, there's no liar loans. Yes, you're right. You're going to say, well, there's a there, there, there's tighter industry standards on credit. Uh, yeah, okay, I heard that one. Uh, but but the, the, the fact is, we have more debt now everywhere you look, right? And this debt comes at a cost. It comes at a cost in either inflation or higher taxes or less government. Which of those three do you think the government's going to have to take? Chances are they're not going to reduce the government size. It's going to be real tough for them to raise the taxes. So the only thing you can do is print money. And when you print money, that creates inflation. And inflation spells disaster for an economy. And this is one of the primary reasons why I say that you will find yourself in a vastly different real estate experience six, eight months, maybe even a year from now. So let's talk about how you can capitalize on this. Now, briefly, let's talk about a short sale. Now, I'm not going to go in length yet about a short sale, but it's important for you to know because that's typically the very first things you're going to find. Now, short sales are caused when a person owes too much. They owe more on the home than it's worth. Now, in this environment, with homes appreciating very quickly in many markets prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, you know, this was not generally a problem because generally if you held a home for five, six, maybe even seven years, you could own enough equity in the home to sell it, pay a realtor a full commission, and then go ahead and have a little leftover to buy something you like. I mean, that was pretty common, right? However, in this post-COVID-19 world, things are a little bit different. And you've got to remember that there are people today living in homes, even as I speak right now, who bought a home a year, maybe two years ago. And for whatever reason, they can't stand their spouse right now. They're looking, you know what? I'm going to get a divorce, this say, right? That's what they say. I'm going to get a divorce. And, and now you've got a homeowner who's decided to sell their home under duress but they owe more on it than it's worth. So what do you do? Well, you got a couple choices. You can do what's called a deed in lieu of foreclosure. Now, remember, folks, I'm not an attorney. I can't give you legal advice. This is all, you know, just my opinions and for entertainment and check with your attorneys and accountants to get, you know, proper advice. But just as I understand it, right, you got deed in lieu of foreclosure, right? You can just give the keys back, so to speak, and say, you know, I don't want to I don't want to deal with this anymore. I'm just going to mail you the keys back, take it over, sign whatever I sign and, and be done with it. And that's one way you could do it. The problem is that when they do this, it has the same net effect on your credit as a foreclosure. So you're not really advantaging yourself by doing that. You could say, well, okay, well, you know, we'll just let it go into foreclosure. But then you were trying to avoid foreclosure, but you're just taking longer. Well, what many people choose to do is what's called a short sale. And a short sale is where they enter into a negotiation with the bank where they will try to find a buyer for the home who will purchase it at a price that will suffice to cover a majority of the mortgage that's owed and that the lender will forgive the original mortgagee of their mortgage or their, 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 deed, in lieu, their deed of trust so they won't be responsible for the payments anymore. 
Now, because Arizona is an anti-deficiency state, meaning that lenders cannot come under home, come after homeowners for the deficiency, you know, Arizonans find this to be a very attractive alternative. They can sell their home with a realtor for free and, 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 and have their credit forgiven. It won't be as bad as a foreclosure, but you know, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like a, 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 I don't know, a bruised, uh, bloody nose, let's say, as opposed as opposed to a black eye. <laughs> right. I mean, it's still a punch, but it's not a good, it's not a, 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 as bad, let's say. So what many people do is they start this foreclosure, I'm sorry, short sale process. And in order to attract a buyer who is willing to buy the property at a price and wait the four or five months it takes for the bank to make this decision, you have to offer it at a discount. And you're not offering it to a person who's looking to buy and move in tomorrow. I mean, you're looking for somebody who's like a month-to-month buyer or somebody like that. And so what ends up happening is a short sale, if you're trying to buy real estate, short sales provide a very unique opportunity for you to buy a, a pretty nice property because the homeowner many times is still living in it. They're still keeping it up. They're still, they're not pouring, you know, cement down the drain or anything of the horror stories you might hear. No, they're, they're taking care of it. And, and, and you'll be able to buy it at a much better price than you would have retail six months ago in a short sale environment. So what are the concerns about a short sale? Well, one of the things you need to be concerned about is short sale. And and, then this goes with all bank property. You know, it doesn't matter if we're talking about uh, a bank owned property as a foreclosure, or if we're talking a short sale, which is owned by the seller still, but you know, contingent upon the bank's decision, right? Uh, There's not going to be any repairs made. There's not going to be, you know, any, you know, shampoo in the carpets or any of that stuff. No, 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 no. You're buying the property as is. Now, obviously you get an opportunity to inspect it, but the property is purchased as is. Now, in a short sale situation, when you make your offer, you make your offer with the understanding that the bank can say no at any time and the seller can say no at any time. Now, what ends up happening many times is when you buy a short sale, you will wait for a number of months for the bank to make a, you know, a lot of decisions. You can't have any kind of uh, familial relationship with the homeowner. You have to have a make, make it what they call an arm's length transaction. Transaction it can't be real. You know, you can't be uh, friends with the people. You can't be their brother or something. I mean, it's got to be distant, right? And the same thing goes with all REO properties, right? Now, when the short sale matter comes to the asset manager's decision-making process, the, at the point that the person who's supposed to make that decision at the bank, uh, then they will go ahead and decide whether or not the offer you made is sufficient enough to cover what the bank needs to cover the, for the home or if they should you know, make the decision to go to foreclosure. Now, this decision, you know, doesn't always make sense. And, and there are a lot of other forces at play. It's not necessarily a, a dollars and cents thing. Many times it's time. Sometimes it's concessions. Uh, dollars obviously make a huge difference. But if you're asking for a lot of money back and you're paying an awful lot in full price, let's say, and you're asking for a whole lot of money back in concessions, well, that makes you look like a weaker offer. Now, Sometimes these banks will go ahead and submit a counteroffer to you. 
Now, this counteroffer process from a short sale is not a back and forth with them. It's either this or nothing. This is what they'll take. They'll call that what they call a pre-approved price, right? So let's say, for example, the home that's in question is $200,000 retail. A typical short sale type price would ultimately end up to be somewhere in the neighborhood of about 170, 180 perhaps, right? In that, um, in that offer, the, the short sale, uh, the, the note will be paid off. Uh, the realtors will be paid, the mortgage fees, whatever, you know, whatever needs to be paid will be paid, but the homeowner will not make any money. They will not walk in, they'll not walk away with anything. Let's say they owe, I don't know, 190 on it, right? They're not going to walk away. If the bank's going to eat 20,000 on it, well, then the homeowner's not going to make any money. Now, if the bank, let's say you make an offer, if the, if the retail price is say, let's say it's worth 200, but it's on the market for 180 as a short sale and you come in and you make an offer, let's say at 150, right? <clears throat> the bank will take, you know, the, the time to go ahead and respond. And when they respond, it's many times going to be what they call a pre-approved price. As I mentioned, they may come back and they say, well, we won't take 150, but we'll take, let's say, I don't know, 165 right? For the sake of argument. From that point on, the bank's not going to negotiate any further. It's either 165 or nothing. Now, this is good news for a real estate agent, because if you're a real estate agent who's marketing a short sale property, once you get a pre-approved price, well, then you know what the bank's willing to do. Up until that point, many times it's hard to discern what the bank will do. And many times you need an offer to do that. That's why it's always a good idea. And just a quick shameless plug here. If you've got a short sale situation and you need to get an offer on a home uh, so you can go ahead and get that pre-approved price from them, uh, then feel free to hit me up at carlbuyshouses.com. That's Carl with a K at carlbuyshouses.com. If you're in the Tucson area, you've got a short sale property you're looking to sell, as a real estate agent, then give me a call or hit me up on my website. Uh, we will, I will definitely be happy to go ahead and take a look at the situation. And if it's something that I'm willing to make an offer on, then I'll certainly make an offer on that property. And if, let's say, they come back with a pre-approved price that's too much for me to pay, well, then I can do just what any other buyer would do, which was be to back out. Say, no, that's cool. Appreciate it. That's a little too rich for my blood and back away. A, a, a seller can, I'm sorry, a buyer can do this if they want to. That's absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, the, the advantage to the seller is that the seller now knows what the bank will take and they can market the property as such. This helps the the marketing of the property for the for the real estate agent, it helps because it helps them get the property marketed to the right people so they know exactly who will buy it. It helps the buyer because the buyer has not had to invest anything at this point. Now, remember, when you're buying a short sale property, remember you buy this property on the typical contracts, the, the regular forms, uh, but you typically don't uh, necessarily submit earnest money right away until there's some sort of pre-approved contract price, right? Because that process can take four months and who wants to take $500 of their hard-earned money and put it in an escrow company while you're out there trying to buy a house? I mean, that's, you know, you can limit those amounts or all sorts of things you can do. So that's a short sale in a short, brief moment. Now, let's briefly talk about the other types of bank-owned properties that you're 
going to need to know about in the here in, in the near future. Now, <clears throat> pardon me. REO stands for uh, real estate owned. That's how the banks classify their properties that they own on the books. Now, the, the main thing you want to know about buying an REO property is that the bank does not want to own real estate. They don't want to foreclose on it. They'll do everything they can to avoid foreclosing on it. And when they actually do foreclose on it, uh, they try to turn around and sell it relatively quickly. Now, this is not to mean that they're foolish. Now, that's that, that they're not dumb. I mean, they're they're not trying to lose money on a property. So they're going to make analyzations about what needs to happen before they sell this property. Now, a couple things factor into this. Now, one of the factors that plays into what a bank is going to do for a property is who actually owns it. Now understand, uh, properties that are owned by housing and urban development are not classified or called foreclosures. Interestingly enough, a lot of real estate agents and the common public don't know this, but the homes that are owned by housing and urban development are actually termed uh, bank uh, I'm sorry, uh, what's the word? They've got, oh goodness, now it escapes me here. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, not foreclosures, it's bank owned. It's not bank owned. Oh goodness, it'll come back to me in about two seconds. Just give me a minute. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wander off on a topic and then it'll come to me. Uh, so in any event, uh, HUD, I'm sorry, HUD bank owned properties or, or HUD, um, HUD acquired, there we go, HUD acquired properties right? Housing and urban development acquired properties. There we go. They're not foreclosures. They're acquired, right? Uh, so I knew I'd catch it soon enough. Uh, they're acquired properties. Those properties uh, are, are owned not by a bank, but by housing and urban development uh, uh, themselves. And so those properties, uh, generally speaking, are sold as is uh, they can represent a very good value. You can find those on HUD.gov. Uh, you can uh, get your local agent to help you show those. Uh, they have keys for those properties to help you get into those. Uh, and, you know, the HUD process is a little bit complicated, uh, but it's basically a bidding process. Uh, you can bid for those properties online. And it's actually a very interesting process. Now, to get back to REO properties, bank-owned or the traditional repossessions, traditional foreclosures that we think about when we think about foreclosed or bank-owned properties, as I mentioned, banks are not fools. They do not want to lose money. And so many times what they will do is they will assign uh, these properties to an asset manager. Now, an asset manager many times is uh, someone with a lot of real estate experience. They themselves, real estate agents, real estate brokers, uh, have been uh, managers and asset managers in the past. Many of them have a lot of financial backgrounds. Uh, they've worked with the banks and in the bank system uh, for many years. And so they understand uh, exactly what needs to happen in terms of selling these assets. Now, remember, from a bank's perspective, okay, this is not an emotional decision. Unlike a retail decision, when you're talking to a retail seller, a retail seller 
is going to be persuaded by price and emotion factors and all that, not the asset manager. The asset manager is determined, uh, is, is, is swayed, if you will, by the strength of your offer as well as the price. You know, he's, he's concerned, he or she is concerned primarily about the strength of your offer. So you can come in with a full price offer, let's say, but if you're asking for a lot of concessions by the way of paid closing costs or uh, inspection you know, things, then a bank manager, I'm sorry, an asset manager is going to consider this a little bit differently than say a retail seller might. Now, the reason why is because the senior asset manager is paid based on the number of assets they get liquidated many times. I mean, many times this is an issue of, of performance. And if you're delaying a sale because they feel, you know, for some reason they feel like you're unable to perform or, or you're, or you're going to end up closing late or there's a problem or something like that, then that can affect their pay and that can affect their rating. And they don't want to, to look bad or, or get paid less because of your misperformance. And so many times, if you're thinking about buying a bank-owned property, you have to keep this in consideration when you're making your offer. Another thing to consider is that they will determine all the title companies. Now, you can choose who you want to. I mean, if you want to choose somebody else, that's fine, but you're, you're going to end up paying uh, quite, a li- quite a lot of money for that. Uh, many times, the bank will require you to pay their fees if you, if you insist on using your own title company. But as it is, uh, many times banks will go ahead and have pre-written agreements with large title companies in the area uh, that they will use that will go ahead and do a remote closing and handle things remotely at a discounted rate. Uh, so typically, when you're making an offer on an REO property or a bank-owned property here in Arizona, what you're going to want to do is put the, uh, the title company to be determined, right? That's probably a really good idea there. Uh, and Well, if at least from a bank REO agent's perspective, remember, uh, check with your agent to get your, your best advice. But I mean, from my perspective, for what it's worth, Speaking as an REO agent, you know, I've been in, in this game for uh, since 1996 and an REO agent, uh, REO agent for 16 years. Uh, it's, it's something that asset managers really like to see is something that is, is meaning that they're, you're willing to do what they want, right? Another thing is a high down payment. That's a big, big deal, right? I mean, if the more down payment, the more skin in the game you've got, you know, from an REO agent and an REO asset manager and manager's perspective, that really conveys a lot of strength when you're trying to buy an REO property. You know, also understanding that these properties are sold and as is condition. I think I mentioned it before, but the bank's not interested in doing a lot of repairs. The bank will certainly do repairs that are safety related. Uh, I have seen banks uh, in some cases do repairs to properties uh, to put them back into a, a saleable condition or maybe even a little bit better than saleable condition uh, to try and you know get a little bit more for a property. Uh, it's, it's rare, but it does happen. Um, the thing that I would probably mention to you about this is that when you're making an offer on an REO property, you certainly don't want to play a lot of games. That's the one thing senior asset managers hate the most is playing games. Uh, so what I would recommend is if you're going to make an offer on a property like that, you know, come with your best offer first. Because chances are, if it's a good value and you're hearing about it on you know, Facebook, you know, YouTube, Twitter, whatever you're, you're seeing it on, on social media, well, chances are there's a whole bunch of other people who saw it too. 
And so when you go to make an offer on a property like that, come with your best offer first, because many times if it's a really good deal, there's going to be more than one offer. And that leads us into this, this next part of the conversation that I'd like to talk about, which is highest and best. You know, it's not uncommon for a bank situation for an REO property to have a lot of interested people in it. And in an REO property situation, when you're making an offer on it, if it's you and say another person or maybe even two or three other people, who knows, uh, then a bank many times will be faced with three or four offers. Now, sometimes in a retail situation, uh, you'll get a multiple counter offer. Uh, but in an REO situation, a bank-owned situation, it is has been my experience that it's almost always that you're going to get what's called a highest and best, meaning that every party has issued uh, what's called a highest and best counteroffer, meaning that you, as a buyer, are to come up with your highest and best offer by a particular time frame. The bank is going to collect everybody's offers, and then they're going to make the decision from there. Now, it's really, really, really important that you sit down and have a honest conversation with yourself about what you're going to do with this property at this point. If you have, you know, if, if, if you have a multiple offer situation on a home and you're considering trying to make some, make some decisions about whether or not you should compete in this environment or what you should do then obviously check with your you know, real estate agent, financial advisors, your lawyers, and all those good professional people. But from my two cents, and that's all it is, is just an opinion. Take it for what it's worth, right? I mean, you heard me on a podcast for crying out loud, right? It was free, right? But from my two cents, in this environment, you have to really ask yourself, am I trying to sell this property in the next five, six, seven years for a profit? Or... Am I just trying to save and I'm sorry, am I just trying to buy this property and live in it for the rest of my life? You know, if I'm, if I'm planning on never selling the house and, and I'm just, you know, I'm not planning on selling it for profit. Well then, okay, fine. That's going to affect my decision process about how much I'm going to pay for a home. Right. If I if I really like a house, it doesn't matter what house it is. If I really like a house and, and I buy houses all the time. I mean, CarlBuysHouses.com. That's my blog. Right. You go there. You see, I, I, I put all kinds of informational articles about selling properties, buying properties and all kinds of stuff there. But but the point is this, that when you're buying a home. I buy homes too, and I'm the same way. And if I'm looking to buy a property and I'm not planning on selling it, I'm planning on staying in there forever, well, that's going to affect how much I'm going to pay. But if I'm thinking, well, you know, I might sell this in five, six, seven years, well, then I've got an entirely different set of considerations that I have to think about right now. And those are the decisions that you have to make when you're trying to make these decisions about a highest and best offer. That's just one aspect is the price. Second aspect is your terms. Now, as I've mentioned before, the bank looks at an offer differently than a retail seller does. A bank is looking for strength, primarily. Like, what is the likelihood that this person is going to close? And what are the things that they look at to, to help determine that? Well, one of the things is the amount of money you put down. 
how much your, your, your earnest money is, you know, what your down payment is like, you know, what's your, what's your financing? I mean, are you getting a 30 year loan? Are you, are you getting a, you know, 20% are you putting cash? I mean, what are you, how are you financing this? That's, that's the terms are a big deal to a bank because it demonstrates how strong you are. I mean, if, if somebody's coming in with cash, that's, that's, that's different than somebody who's getting a loan. Now you can say, well, to the seller, well, what difference does it make? It's all one thing or the other. Well, no, there's a whole lot of hurdles between cash and a transaction and, uh, and, and a conventional loan and a transaction. Now, there's a lot less hurdles there. Cash, you just wire the money. On a, on a conventional loan, you got to go through the appraisal, you got to go through the underwriting, you got to go through the, uh, the final, I mean, you got all these hurdles you got to go through with financing. And a, and a senior asset manager is going to know that. They're going to know that even though you're planning on paying full price for whatever your price is or more for the home, if you have to get a loan and you have to get, you know, a 95% loan or something like that, well, then that's not as strong as somebody who's putting 20% down and getting an 80% loan. And that person's not as strong as a person who's paying cash. So you have to understand how your terms fit into here. Another thing to consider are concessions. Now, you already know that, you know, you know, short sale, the, the, the homeowner doesn't have the money to do the repairs. If they had the money to do the repairs, they wouldn't be doing a short sale, right? And, and if, if, if the bank was interested in doing repairs, they would have done the repairs prior to you seeing the home. So when you see this REO property, whatever it is, chances are that's the way it's going to be sold to you. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean you don't have the opportunity to inspect and do a standard inspection. And of course, if there are certain things that come up that the bank doesn't know about, say, for example, uh, I don't know, I'm just spitballing here, but let's just say hypothetically that you're out there doing an inspection and, uh, you know, you do a septic inspection or something and you discover the septic leach field or whatever. And this again is totally hypothetical is, is, is broken or whatever. Well, then that's something the bank has to consider and they will typically consider. Let's say hypothetically that, you know, there's a broken window, you know, there's a kid that went by and, you know, threw a rock and busted a window. Are they going to fix it? Probably not. You know, the bank's probably just going to put a board over it. Now, a homeowner, a retail seller who's living in the property, yeah, they're going to fix it. Banks, nah, they're not going to fix that sort of thing. If it's health and safety related, they might fix it. If not, then chances are they won't. That alarm right there just tells me it's about time to wrap this up. So I'd like to tell you a couple final notes here when it comes to closing on a REO property or a short sale property. A couple things you need to know. First, aside from the strength position, when a bank sends you back their offer, you know, they're, they're, let's say uh, you've made your offer initially to the bank, the bank comes back with the highest and best offer, or maybe they just accept your offer, right? You get word from the bank electronically, typically uh, through email that they've accepted your offer or they're considering your offer or something along those lines. And then eventually what will happen uh, is at some point, you folks will agree to the price and terms. Now, when that happens, remember, all this has been so far on verbal back and forth via email stuff. I mean, 
typically banks can't respond to people, you know, in two or three days every day because there's many circumstances that COVID-19 being one, I mean, they're half staff in many places. And so what will happen many times is you'll have a little bit of a delay, but you will get a response. And when you get a response, understand that at, at some point when you do get an acceptance, they will send to you uh, their terms on written contracts so you can see exactly what the terms are. Now, there's a couple things to be aware of. Don't be scared about them. Uh, a couple things called per diem, right? If you don't close, let's say you're supposed to close on uh, July 1st or whatever day you're supposed to close, and you don't close. Well, sometimes, you know, banks, uh, secondary lenders, uh, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, sometimes they'll put in what's called a per diem clause, uh, clause saying if you don't close, on that particular day, it's $150 every day until you do. And so uh, sometimes that's in there. So don't be worried about it. It's just something you'll need to be aware of and then keep your lender informed. This is to keep everybody on track because as I mentioned, a lot of, buddies, uh, a lot of people's money is on the line. Another thing to be aware of is the as-is addendum. You know, you're going to be able to see that the property is sold as-is, that they purchased it through uh, many times a special warranty deed or something along those lines. They don't know anything about the property. Uh, so they can't really convey the typical property deed that you might get from a residential homeowner, right? A residential homeowner is going to have full knowledge of that title. They're going to know everything about it. Uh, but the bank, well, they're not going to be that way. They, they foreclosed on the home. And so you're going to get what's called a special warranty deed uh, or a sheriff's deed or something along those lines. Uh, the, the fact is that, again, I'm not an attorney. Check with your attorney to get full legal advice. Uh, but, you know, on a practical uh, perspective, uh, this is very common and something not to be worried about. Now, another thing to finally be concerned uh, or at least to be aware of is that the contract itself that comes back to you and your agent is going to be uh, in a different format. It's going to be all written out. It's not going to be in an Arizona contract or your state contract. It's just going to be a standard contract that they've written uh, that overwrites the, you know, the Arizona contract or whatever contract you're writing uh, for your state. Uh, the reason why is for uniformity. Now, remember, these banks operate in all the states. And so if they were trying to maintain conformity in Tennessee, uh, as well as Arizona, and say Texas, as well as South Carolina, well, then there'd be a lot of confusion in the ranks. So what they do is they add a simple addendum uh, to make everything the same for everybody. And that's why they'll restate many things like the price, the escrow, uh, who it's going to, when you're closing, things of that nature. So don't be freaked out, but that's what that's for. So uh, anyway, hopefully the alarm's already gone off. You know that I'm running out of time. Hopefully today's podcast was a little bit helpful for you. I know right now it's not probably something you're going to be hearing too much about, uh, but in the future, in the next few months, uh, I promise you this podcast is going to be a lot more helpful. Thank you so much for paying attention. And if you know anybody who could use this sort of information, would you do me a favor? Share this with them. Share with a smile. Tell them, hey, guess what? I heard this crazy dude on the internet and you've got to hear this. Thank you so much for paying attention to me rambling. And as always, have a powerful sales day. Bye-bye.